Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 7, Talking Head. In this episode, we'll continue our exploration of the history of talking machines as seen from the perspective of the phonograph. We ended the last episode with the death of Wolfgang von Kempelen. He had dedicated the last 20 years of his life to studying the mechanical production of human speech in order to build speaking machines. We mentioned last time that shortly before his death, he published the findings of his life's work to inspire and assist future generations of slightly sad, lonely, and obsessive men. A few, at least, picked up his book and continued down his odd path towards a perfect speaking machine. Of these, perhaps the most successful of all, and saddest, was a German astronomer named Joseph Faber, who in 1846 revealed euphonia to the British public. You might recall that in the 1879 lecture about the phonograph that we explored in a previous episode, Faber's speaking machine was described as the greatest of the century prior to the phonograph. Euphonia was a quite creepy-looking talking head instrument that Faber had spent 17 years working on in the United States. During its development, he'd had his ups and downs, including the smashing of a speaking machine or two allegedly out of the frustration of a public neither respecting nor caring about his life's work. But he persevered, and once Euphonia was complete, he soon decided to take his machine to England, where, he hoped, talking heads are properly appreciated. Actually, I do happen to know a disproportionate amount of talking heads fans in England, same as it ever was. So in 1846, Euphonia was presented at London's Egyptian Hall, and its exhibition indeed made an impression on the British public. For all its complexity, its speaking, as with Kempelen's machines, didn't feature particularly natural variation in pitch or dynamics. As a result, it spoke through its replica-moving face in an eerie monotone for the most part, which was described as a hoarse sepulchral voice as if from the depths of a tomb. Despite this flaw of sorts, it was an extremely versatile instrument that could speak almost every European language, pronounce almost every combination of vowels and consonants, whisper, hiss, laugh, and even sing with its complex system of plates, chambers, and mechanisms. I use the word instrument purposefully because, again, like von Kempelen's machine, it required a human operator at a keyboard to make it speak or sing. As an artist, it was perhaps before its time, if it had access to the Typo Negative or Sisters of Mercy songbooks, I think things might have gone a bit differently for Faber and Euphonia. As it happened, their ghostly rendition of God Save the Queen was striking but very, very, very odd. In many ways, hearing this machine sing must have been a lot like hearing a computer sing Daisy Bell in 1961, a strange mechanical voice suggesting a new technological frontier. So let's imagine ourselves in that room with the scruffy inventor standing by his 17-year-old offspring. You might have related the scene later to a friend as follows. The exhibitor, Professor Faber, was a sad-faced man dressed in respectable, well-worn clothes that were soiled by contact with tools, wood, and machinery. The room looked like a laboratory and workshop, which it was. The professor was not too clean, and his hair and beard sadly wanted the attention of a barber. I had no doubt that he slept in the same room as the figure, his scientific Frankenstein monster, 
and I felt the secret influence of an idea that the two were destined to live and die together. That was the impression of a theater manager upon meeting Faber and Euphonia. It was a strong impression, and there was a sad prophetic truth in his words. Some 15 years after the London exhibition, Faber destroyed Euphonia and killed himself. He was perhaps the last of his kind, a person dedicating his life to recreating human speech through imitating the human mechanism of speech production. But one person certainly inspired by Faber was a young Alexander Graham Bell, who upon experiencing such speaking machines with his father, endeavored to try to build one of his own. These youthful efforts must have fueled his imagination and expertise with speaking technologies, a personal path that would lead to his success with a working telephone in 1876. After Faber, the next most renowned speaking machine would be Edison's phonograph. Though, with respect to this history, the phonograph's revolving cylinder at the heart of the mechanism was both literally and figuratively revolutionary. In juxtaposing these two machines, one can see how the phonograph turned this tradition on its head. Instead of being based on replicating sounds as they are produced at their sources, it was modeled on understandings of how sounds are processed by the body of the listener. For historian Jonathan Stern, this switch in perspective has its own history, a history at the heart of how he would respond to Villiers' fictional Edison, who wonders why none of the great inventors of the past had dreamt up a phonograph. The phonograph could only emerge out of a culture that not only perceived sound as pressure waves of vibration and understood hearing as a mechanical act of processing these pressure waves, but also one that sought to understand the production of sound from the perspective of the listener rather than producer. In this respect, the phonograph had to first be a sound writer before it could be a sound reproducer. And as we've already covered in this podcast, it indeed was in the form of Scott's 1857 phonograph. But rather than going back to the past, let's go back to the future. Back to Villiers' 1886 novel, The Future Eve, that is. The anime film Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence, opens with this quote from The Future Eve. If our gods and hopes are nothing but scientific phenomena, then it must be said that our love is scientific as well. Why would a 21st century anime open with a reference to this 19th century work? Well, for one thing, Villiers in The Future Eve is often credited with coining the term android. Villiers began writing the novel in 1878, almost certainly sometime after hearing news of Edison's invention, though it wouldn't be published until 1886, the year before Edison's new phonograph would make the headlines again. It's a story that's inspired both creativity and outrage, and this is how it goes. It is quite shocking. One day, as Thomas Edison is dreaming away a fine morning at Menlo Park with his spirit and lab assistant Sawala, he gets an urgent visit from a friend named Lord Ewald. Lord Ewald has been driven close to suicide by his frustrations with a beautiful singer named Miss Alicia Clary. Alicia is a physically perfect woman who, in Lord Ewald's opinion, is also hopelessly bourgeois and dull. She is an empty vessel who can't truly appreciate artistic beauty and has no ambitions or goals apart from living and thinking in exactly the way that is expected of her. Edison, in this story, literally owes Ewald his life, so he offers to build a machine version of Alicia called Hadley that will imitate Alicia's physical perfection, but will have a personality designed to overcome the flaws and disappointment of real women. In order to complete the work, Alicia will have to be invited to Menlo Park to be copied exactly. Speaking of the plan, Edison says, 
I'm going to steal her own existence away from her. Capture the grace of her gesture, the fullness of her body, the fragrance of her flesh, the resonance of her voice, the turn of her waist, the light of her eyes, down to the shadow she casts on the ground. Her complete identity, in a word. I shall be the murderer of her foolishness, the assassin of her triumphant animal nature. And then, in place of this soul which repels you in the living woman, I shall infuse another sort of soul. Less aware of itself, perhaps, but about that sort of thing, who can tell? A phonograph is used to copy and replicate her voice, and much of the book focuses in obsessive detail on how her legs, arms, face, and all the rest of her body are imitated. Eventually, Hadley gets created, and indeed Ewald falls head over heels for his perfect woman, but then comes a twist. Hadley reveals to Ewald that she is in fact more than an android. There is a ghost in the machine, so to speak. She is possessed by the spirit of Sawana, Edison's mystical assistant. But as they sail away to happiness, the boat sinks, and they both sink with it. The end. There is a lot to unpack in this story, especially regarding the intensely misogynistic elements of it, and there are many who can speak about that aspect of the novel much better than I can. I can direct you for starters to Tara Isabella Burton's article on strangehorizons.com called Hadley, the First Android, Restituting the Female Body in Villiers' Tomorrow's Eve. Speaking of its cultural context, Burton writes, and I quote, that, indeed, much of the literature so prevalent in the scientific discourse of 19th century France takes great pains to highlight the dichotomy between the male rational doctor and the female hysterical patient. Earlier, she quotes Asti Hustvet on the same topic. A new obsession with femininity, as the sheer volume of treatises on the subject during this period demonstrates, arose during the late 19th century, when the rise in prominence of medicine converged with social conditions to create a new science of sexual difference. Femininity was now rewritten according to new developments in medicine. In late 19th century France, the deranged body, a pathological, degenerate, and hysterical physiology, becomes the dominant cognitive frame for the idea of the feminine. Fascinating insights, and if you're interested in exploring these ideas further, I recommend that, after reading the novel perhaps, you Google the article and start from there. There are many interesting parallels between Villiers' Hadley and Hoffman's Olympia from The Sandman, who we discussed last episode. In both stories, the automatons represent a male observer's ideal female partner. But whereas Lord Ewald is repulsed by the real Alicia's disinterest and disengagement in his mind and passions, Nathaniel becomes enraptured in part by Olympia's lack of any language at all. She can only say, ah, ah. But in that sound, Nathaniel becomes convinced that he has found a perfectly understanding and consenting soul. These were different automatons for different times. But one aspect that stayed the same was that the ideal female remained an objective for male explorations of the potential of human-like machines, in fiction at least. In fact, recent films such as Ex Machina and Her show that the tradition is still going strong. She's fantastic, made of plastic, microchips here and there. La 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 la. One purpose of this podcast is to point to connections between the imagination and reality to notice fictions inspired by facts, and facts inspired by fictions. With that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the fact of the Edison doll. Now, it's perhaps a bit grotesque to speak about a project to create a children's toy in connection with the problematic and sexualized fictional creations of Olympia and Hadley. 
I don't mean to imply that the real Edison had any intention in the slightest in replacing or perfecting the female form, or took any inspiration from any such tradition. Nevertheless, it's interesting to me that both real and fictional Edisons were building female automatons in the 1880s. I should say here that the Edison doll was a product not of the tinfoil phonograph, but rather the wax-based cylinders of the market-oriented phonograph that emerged in the late 1880s. The doll project appeared publicly very early indeed, in 1890, and it deserves a mention in the history of sound recording, as it was the first product created with the technology purely directed towards entertainment. In the end, by most accounts, the project proved to be a costly failure. The dolls were simply too expensive, bulky, and technically demanding to be a children's toy, and niche collector's markets weren't sufficient to financially sustain the project. What's more, the technology was in no state for miniaturization, and so the recordings, despite the variety of languages and songs available, simply did not satisfy even by the standards of the time. New York World, September 7, 1890 The Edison phonograph dolls have just been put on sale in London and Paris, but they seem to have proven a disappointment so far in New York. The supposed words or verses, which are ground out in a flat, uninflected whine, do not appear to come from the talking doll's lips at all. And during her most impassioned recitations, such as Mary Had a Little Lamb, the doll's eyes and lips remain still and motionless. It may have been a failure, but it's left us a few creepy photos, as well as an interesting set of surviving, just about, recordings. Let's hear one. Well, we have one foot in the 1890s now, the decade that saw phonographs, gramophones, cylinders, and discs grow from nebulous ideas into mass-produced commercial products. Once we belly flop into those waters, we'll really have space to stretch out, dive, hold our breath, doggy paddle, and pee in the pool. But before we go back to the future, let's go back to 1878 for one last broadcast, a male voice speculating about a confused future that seemed all too inevitable a cacophonous future that threatened the very soul of British masculine virtue. We're not considering this voice last because it sums up the period in any way. On the contrary, by considering this perspective last, I hope to disrupt that very sense of any one expression being capable of representing an era. Every historical moment, technological or otherwise, consists of a multitude of diverse voices, hopes and fears. This is just another one. Here's an abridged version of that article. When a child of seven can recognize distinctly in the phonograph the voice of a friend he has not heard since he was five, we may feel pretty sure that that marvelous instrument has at last triumphantly solved the problem which Mr. Edison set himself. We are told that two distinct voices, as well as a great number of musical airs, have passed over the Atlantic and become audible again here after being silent for ten days. What are we to expect from this wonderful invention? Mainly, we fear, an immense storing up of sounds that it might be better not to store up. An immense accumulation of those winged words whose wings are best employed in carrying off into nothingness what deserves only temporary life. Unless man suddenly takes a great spring into a moral greatness worthy of all this careful storing, 
we may have future generations drowned beneath the accumulated scraps of ancestral voices. Are we not discovering a great deal too many means of defeating the benefits conferred by oblivion? We cannot help being appalled at the shrinkage of character which seems to go on simultaneously with the growth of these manifold devices for erecting massive monuments to character. Are not men daily becoming less and less massive, less and less impressive in proportion to the machinery for taking impressions of them and recording delicately all the outcome of their much fretted and subdivided and attenuated lives? Imagine a man in the next century whose great-grandfather was a Gladstonian, whose grandfather was entrusted with a command in the war with Ireland, and whose father had sided with the Irish in resisting the oppressions of the restored government. And imagine these ancestors addressing their descendants in all the different accents of political passion to which their different situations in life had given rise. Would not such a man carry into life a consciousness even more hesitating and dividing than that which gives birth to our 19th century vacillations? The time will come when it will be necessary to preach a sort of iconoclasm towards the pieties of ancestry, in order to clear the way for anything like independent growth. One of the most effective of Arabian fairy tales describes how the prince who is to break the spell of the wicked magician's enchantment has to pass along a way where voices in the greatest confusion address him from every side, in every accent of scorn or ridicule or indignation, all appearing to come from the mere stocks and stones beside his path. We much doubt whether Edison's wonderful and admirable discovery, and the extensions that must follow, will not tend to bewilder the world in which our children's children live, at least as much as the outcries of the bewitched valley of rocks bewildered the hero of that eastern tale. Such was one set of fears for a phonographic future, a future where our character and personalities will be so divided by the multiplicity of voices literally ringing in our ears, sacred and profane, wise and foolish, sensible and insane, that we won't know what to think because we would never have had the headspace or self-assurance to think for ourselves. You know, putting aside his militaristic machismo, he just might have a point. With that, we've reached the end of the beginning, namely, the two years' immediate interest following Edison's invention of the tinfoil phonograph. From here, the phonograph will go from being a scientific instrument only seen by a few to a commercial product available on the high street. Along with it, sound recordings will go from tinfoil sheets that can only be played back two or three times to wax-based cylinders and discs that have survived to this day. I do hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. If you are a fan of the show, please do get in touch, as I would love to hear your comments and thoughts. There's a contact form on the webpage at www.noiseinthegroove.com. I'd also appreciate if you rated the show and left a review on iTunes. So long, thank you for listening, and join us next time as we explore the new and improved phonograph.